Turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. We were set to read the whole chapter, and uh, that was my plan. <clears throat> and I like to, uh, it's, it really is one whole unit to read the whole chapter together, but unfortunately, I had way too much information to cover in the first 11 verses, so we're just going to read the first 11 and then stop there, okay? Um, but feel free to read the rest of it later today. I, I don't want to hinder you from reading God's Word in any possible way, so let's continue to do that. But hear, hear the Word of God, Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. This, then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could not find ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the documents that cannot be changed according to the law, the Medes, and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you as very needy people. Uh, we are weak in the flesh. We are proud of spirit. Uh, we think that we can rule our own lives. And sometimes we act as common atheists when it comes to this realm of prayer. Well, we pray that as we hear from your word and, and the spirit moves within us to illumine our minds and to receive the things of heaven. Lord, we pray that you continue to work in us a love for you, a love for the gospel, and a love for prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I've shared with you before, uh, you know, once you've been around for a while with the same pastor, he starts to use the same illustrations, but I'm going to go for it anyway. I remember the first time that I was in Indonesia and I had to ride in a van, a very hot van. It was 100 degrees, I think, outside, so I don't know how hot it was inside, but I remember the windows didn't go down and I kept passing billboards with men wearing black hats on them. And then as I drove by, I noticed other men had white hats and some men had no hats at all. So about 
dehydrated, about to pass out. I said, so what's up with the hats? And the driver, who was a Christian, um, but had come from a Muslim background originally, he said, well, if I were to simplify it for you, it's something like this. The, the men who wear white hats, they take their faith seriously. And when the call to prayer goes out uh, from the imam and from the, the loudspeakers, and there's no place in Indonesia you can't go that you're not going to hear this loud call many times throughout the day to pray. The men who are wearing white hats have already planned in advance exactly where they're going to be during that time so that they can pray. But then there are many other men who don't wear hats at all. And he said, well, those people, they're really just nominal Muslims at best. They don't really care about the call to prayer. They'll ignore it entirely. But then he says, but then there's also the men who wear the black hats. And he says, really, they don't really take their faith that seriously either, but they want you to think that they do. And he says, what you're seeing on the billboards are politicians. You're seeing men who are either already serving the government or wanting to serve, and they want to give you the impression that they really are good Muslims. For somehow, the black hat, that's what it stands for. That's, that, at least that's the way he explained it to me. And I thought, well, that's very similar to America, as you can imagine, in so many different ways. But it, it, it's interesting. There, there's a bona fide miracle that takes place later on in this chapter that we'll see when we get to it next week about Daniel being thrown into the lion's den and the lion's not actually eating him, even though they're starving to death, if you will. But the other miracle, at least tongue-in-cheek, one of the commentators puts it this way, that the greatest miracle here actually in this chapter is that you find an honest politician, a man of integrity that you can find nothing to cast blame against. When we last left Daniel, he was still in Babylon, and if you remember, King Belshazzar had... Uh, elevated to be the third man in the kingdom after Nabonidus, who's the real king, and then his son, uh, Belshazzar. They had placed a gold chain around his neck, proclaimed him third in the kingdom of Babylon, had, had him wear the purple robes, etc., etc. Of course, this promotion wouldn't last long because that very night, the, Mer the Medes and the Persians were coming to take the kingdom, and so whatever he had, surely he would have been stripped of immediately. But nevertheless... Now we move forward just a little bit in time. It's not quite a year later, but sometime in the first year of Darius the Mede. And in that first year, already Daniel is rising as the cream of the crop again, as we can see, up to the top of government leadership. Under King Darius's expanding kingdom, which is continually expanding at this time, he appoints 120 satraps uh, throughout his administration. And then over them, he places three additional officers who serve as overseers to ensure that in no way is the king losing money, basically. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, the bigger your government gets, the more waste and the more theft and all sorts of other things that are taking place. And as you can imagine, these other satraps, these other overseers are not very happy at all that Daniel has been placed and is, considering, is being considered to be placed as number two in all the kingdoms. So he moves up from number three under Belshazzar to number two under Darius the Mede. Uh, but there are a number of reasons why they wouldn't like that. Number one, he's a Jew, and certainly there's some anti-Semitic flavor uh, throughout the empire. We can see that very clearly. But there's also just good old-fashioned jealousy, right? These other men were also vying for the position. He was able to... Um, outplace them. But then finally, just his simple honesty and integrity greatly frustrated their own attempts 
at pulling the wool over the king's eyes. If you think about it, there's a reason why he wants these overseers in the first place, because he knows the satraps are stealing from him. And so he's trying to keep that from happening. And as you can imagine, Daniel, the godly man that he is, it sometimes has to play the whistleblower. And you can imagine how much hatred that would cause on behalf of a number of these men. So once again, we see that it's not necessarily Daniel's faith that is the issue here, but rather his goodness and lawfulness that they hate. Of course, as you can imagine, godliness should always lead to goodness and lawfulness. Uh, But nevertheless, it's not necessarily his faith in God, but rather his righteousness that causes them to hate him so much. And in fact, for those of you who are in the small groups with us that are studying 1 Peter, you can see that that's one of Peter's main drives, is that Christians should be known for their goodness and for their faithfulness, for their righteousness. That's how they're distinguished from the rest of society. But at the same time, he warns Christians, well, they're going to hate you for it. And as you know, the Apostle Paul says the same thing on a number of occasions, particularly in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, which means you're going to be growing in goodness and lawfulness, the consequences of that is you will be persecuted. You will be hated, not always because of your faith, but simply because you're good. Can you imagine? Good people are hated, surprisingly enough. Charles Schultz, as you know, the the author of the Peanuts cartoons, the very first cartoon strip that he drew was of a scene of a a boy and a girl sitting on the steps, I guess at a school, and Charlie Brown comes walking down the sidewalk. And as he's coming down and he's walking by them, uh, toward them at least, uh, the boy says to the girl, well, here comes good old Charlie Brown. And then he comes a little bit closer, and and again in front of the girl, he says, Good old Charlie Brown, yes, sir. And then Charlie begins to walk a little bit farther away, beyond earshot, and seethingly, the same boy on the step says, Good old Charlie Brown, how I hate him. Maybe that explains why Lucy has been stealing the football from him all these years. Maybe she hates him, too, and wants to make him look like a fool because he's so good. Maybe, just maybe. That seems to be at least the reason why Daniel is so hated. I mean, after all, why would a Christian ever hate a godly man? Right? It's someone who loves his sin, hates godliness, hates goodness. Only that kind of person would would hate Daniel. So they begin plotting, and they conspire three times in secret behind closed doors. We'll see this throughout the rest of the chapter. Uh, But interesting, the word that's used in the Aramaic is of the same root as the word in the Hebrew that's used in Psalm 2. Are you following me on this? Psalm 2, same concept here at least, verbally speaking, uh, is the same passage where David says, Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But why? Because they hate his goodness. They hate his righteousness, and they hate all of those who walk in his goodness and righteousness. And so that ongoing animosity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will continue on until the final day because of that hatred. And so Peter tells the Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and they will, they may see your good deeds and at least on the day of visitation, on the day of Christ's return, 
glorify God by your goodness. Your goodness should lead to that for some, and certainly is going to lead to hatred and animosity for others. But Daniel was so good, they couldn't find a single thing to accuse him of. Not a single thing. I mean, look at the headlines of the last year. Unlike Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew, Daniel's name is not going to be mentioned on Jeffrey Epstein's files, right? Unlike Donald Trump, there's no stripper or porn star that's going to have to be paid hush money. Unlike the Biden family, there's no backroom dealings with foreign governments, siphoning funds to personal pockets. Even if they would have had the internet back then, which I'm glad they did not, but they could have gone 40 years back in Daniel's history and not found a single thing that he had said or done that they could cast a shadow upon. He was that good. Every way he was above reproach. And it didn't take the evil plotters that long to figure that out. And so the one way that they could get him was be able to turn his faith in God against the king. So they came up with a harebrained scheme of outlawing prayer to any god or man for 30 days. I'm not sure why 30 days, but it sounds like a good round number, I guess. Except to King Darius. Now keep in mind, they don't really care who Daniel prays to. You have to know that, right? It's, it's not necessarily a religious thing for them. It's just a, a proud, hateful thing because they can't get what they want. Nor do they care whether Darius is actually considered a god or whether anybody should pray to him or honor him in any way. That's not their purpose. They're settling on this particular tactic merely because they know something about the king and they know something about Daniel. They know that the king is easily flattered and naive and will go along with this scheme. And they know that Daniel will never pray to the king or pray through the king as a mediator unto his God and certainly he will never stop praying unto the Lord. And so it sounded like a good scheme to them. Of course they had to lie through their teeth in order to get this passed. They had to say to the king that every satrap, every overseer was fully in support of this, which we know is not the case, at least on the part of Daniel, perhaps his three friends, if they're one of the satraps, we don't know. But all we know is they're lying. And yet, nevertheless, the gullible king is, is overly thrilled by this proposition that he firmly believes that everybody in the kingdom loves him that much that they want to honor him in such a fantastic and splendid way. For surely, he didn't give any thought whatsoever about the consequences if someone actually broke this law, because in his mind, no one would actually go against him now that everybody loves him so much. You can see how foolish kings can be. So the first step in their plan to come to fruition, now on to the second step. How to entrap Daniel. Probably wouldn't be that hard. <laughs> Verse 10, though, tells us that when Daniel hears the news of the decree, he doesn't make any attempt, as far as we know, to actually meet with the king or try to defend his own practice against the policy. Rather, it simply says that after he heard the decree, he went to his house where he had the windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees, and he prayed three times that day, just as he had done previously. Now, don't assume for a moment that Daniel had the windows open because he wanted to get caught. 
I think some people have interpreted it that way. Now, he's praying with the windows open toward Jerusalem for a very biblical reason. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 8, in verses 36 through 50, this is the time of the dedication of the temple when Solomon is making this glorious prayer unto God. And in that prayer, he recognizes that there will be a time in the future in which God's people will sin so greatly against the Lord that they'll be exiled to a foreign land. But he says, when that happens, O Lord, if they look back to their homeland and pray toward Jerusalem, toward the holy temple, and humble themselves, may you give them favor in the eyes of their captors. So Daniel's doing exactly that. He's, he's obeying the Lord, knowing that this is what the law has required of him. This is what the expectation is of, of all the people of God. And so, as a result, uh, this is not uh, a way to get caught. It's not some sort of proud act of defiance, just to prove his point that this is a stupid law, as many of us on Facebook might do. Nor is it an evangelistic attempt, maybe to encourage unbelievers or other believers to look at what I'm doing. Maybe you'll do something similar. I, I, I've known many people that have told me in passing, I try not to condemn them too much, but they'll tell me sometimes that they pray in public during their meals so that other people can see them pray. I'm like, that sounds kind of pharisaical. If you're going to pray in public, pray because you want to pray to God, not because you want other people to see that. Daniel's not praying to be seen, you see. This is his upper room. He's in the upper chamber. He's got the windows open because he's praying toward Jerusalem. And so, as you noticed, they overhear. Now, we're not actually told the content of his prayers, which I imagine wouldn't be anything out of the ordinary, considering that he says he prays just as he always does. But there's interesting, um, a prayer that's given to us later on in Daniel chapter 9. Almost the entire chapter is one of his prayers. And it's actually dated almost exactly this time, this first year of, of Darius. So if you want to get a good example of what he was praying at this time, just look ahead to Daniel chapter 9. And you'll see there that he had been reading in the book of Jeremiah that... The prophecy was given that after 70 years of exile, they would be returned home. And so this is like the 70th year. So Daniel's praying according to what Jeremiah had given so that he could have his people go home. So more than likely, he's praying that the king would be gracious toward them, that he would allow them to return home, that his people would be forgiven as he's confessing the sins before them, etc., etc. That would be the, the, the main content of his prayer. Now, likely, he also would have prayed for himself and for his safety and everything else like everyone else. But he, he clearly is doing something in a regular pattern here, which, which, which brings up a, an interesting question. Why does Daniel take the risk of praying publicly at this point when he knows that God's people are going home within days, perhaps? Why take the risk? I mean, he could have just prayed quietly, right? He could have shut the windows. He could have just gone in his room, prayed in his head, underneath his breath. Why take the risk? Why needlessly be persecuted? I was reading a very fascinating book this week on Theodore Beza, who's the successor of John Calvin, basically about the Reformation in Geneva and France. And it's interesting, there were five seminary students that were studying underneath Calvin and, and Beza, and they were so excited about what they were learning, they wanted to go back to France and share with their family and friends the true gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now keep in mind, France was not a safe place at this time for Protestants. And they got the blessing of Bayes and Calvin anyway, and they went. The second they stepped foot across the border into France, they were immediately imprisoned and put on death row. They didn't even get a chance to preach to a single soul. And of course, many people at that time were saying, what a waste. They threw their lives away. But Beza writes that those five young men did more in a period of months than I've done in the last 50 years. Because through their journals, through their letters that they wrote home, more people came to faith in Christ more people proudly made a public profession of their faith than ever had done before. And pockets of Huguenot, Calvinist, Protestant Christians began to flourish even more throughout the land because they just wanted to be obedient unto God and share what they had learned with their neighbors. It wasn't quite such a waste after all. In God's providence, he made them to flourish. Perhaps Daniel's persecution would serve his community in a similar manner if he were to be put to death through these lines. We don't know if that were to have happened. But that wasn't, again, primarily the reason for his praying to start a revolution or to start a reformation without the land, but rather seems that his primary reason for praying at this time was simply because it was his regular habit to pray. He's praying because he always prays. Why would that change in any way? Presumably he had been praying three times a day for many years and this wasn't anything particular that was going to change just because the edict had been passed Daniel had been praying like he was eating there's certain times a day you eat certain times a day you pray so when the time came for him to pray he got down on his knees just like he always does and began to pray to his eternal king it wasn't just Daniel who did this other Jews did this as well we find that this is a, a very strong tradition that has taken place throughout the years at certain times of the day, the Jews would pray three times. And the early church did the same thing. I remember discovering this the first time I preached through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says this. It, it mentions all of these things that the early Christians devoted themselves to. And it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And then it also says in the ESV, to the prayers. Now, many of your translations will just say to prayer as general. But ESV is very specific. It says to the prayers because it's in the plural. It's not in the singular. What does he mean by that? He's referring to specific hours of prayer. They devoted themselves to praying the hours of prayer. And we find out that in the very next chapter, the chapter which is just a couple verses later than here, the, the one that we read earlier in Acts chapter 3, that Peter and John went to the temple at, at the ninth hour and makes a point of showing that it was the ninth hour or the third basically three in the afternoon but because Luke tells us it was the hour of prayer and it was during the hour of prayer that they healed this man they had come to the temple specifically to keep the hour of prayer likewise Acts chapter 10 same thing if you remember Cornelius is praying at the sixth hour and at that particular or excuse me the ninth hour and at that particular time God reveals himself to him and, and tells him to anticipate this uh, meeting with Peter Peter is also on his roof at the sixth hour when the angel appears to him and tells him about Cornelius and, and the, if you remember the sheet with all the animals, come kill and eat. All of this happens during particular hours of prayer, which should tell us something. 
God tends to do things at times when we give ourselves to prayer. Uh, have you noticed that? Yes. That when you pray, God seems to want to work through these things. God likes to work through your prayers and does some outstanding things. So basically three times a day, in addition to their own prayers, three times a day, these would gather at 9 a.m., 12 p.m., and 3 p.m., at least at this time in the temple, to pray. They would pray together. Now, as we know, the Word of God doesn't command us to pray three times a day. I'm not saying you have to go home and you have to do this, and 9 o'clock you've got to pray, 12 o'clock you have to pray, 3 o'clock you have to pray, or you're going to hell. I'm not saying that. Nor am I saying that you have to pray five times a day like the Muslims do. Nor am I saying you have to pray seven times a day as the psalmist said he did in Psalm 119.14, saying, I praise God continually seven times a day. We don't have to do that. But I'm also saying you don't have to not do that. Right? Uh, it's interesting, um, the priest in the temple were called to lead God's people in prayer twice a day, the morning and the evening sacrifice. And we even see the altar of incense is given uh, to represent the prayers of the people being offered up. And so these two times a day they would pray. And they would expect it to be there to lead God's people in prayer. But as you know, in the New Testament, you're not looking to priests to pray on your behalf. Uh, you have a high priest, certainly Jesus. But now we're all called priests. Do you think maybe God want us to do something similar? To maybe be ready to pray and, and maybe set a time and say, well, I'm going to pray to the Lord and I'm going to give him my offering of praise at specific times, perhaps throughout the day. In fact, if you haven't settled on it yet, uh, maybe a good New Year's resolution would be to work on that prayer. I don't know a single person here or a single person I've ever met who said, you know, I'm really awesome at prayer. I don't need any work on that. Most of us uh, feel pretty lousy at it. Uh, but I think, honestly, I think the reason why most of us are so lousy, we don't spend that much time practicing it. Uh, can I get an amen on that? Amen. <laughs> um, I would highly recommend it. In fact, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to share some good news with you. In fact, it's static news on my part and Mark's part and David's part. Um, if you remember when I was stuck in Peru, COVID had broken out, and David and Mark and I were talking to each other on email, let's do something. And so we decided to write devotions on every chapter of the Bible. Well, praise God. By the end of this month, we're going to be done. The whole Bible taken four years the whole Bible now that doesn't mean that we wrote one on every chapter a couple times I skipped some maybe more than a couple got to go back and fix some of those um, but uh, I was talking to Mark about this the other day that we want to do that again in the future to where we write on the ones that we haven't written on so that if Mark wrote on one I'll write on it and vice versa etc uh, but maybe this year to give a different focus Maybe to just give some bullet points for prayer on each chapter. And to give you a little bit more, I don't know, resources, if you will, to say, well, how would I pray through this chapter? Instead of just writing out a prayer for you to follow, give you some fodder for prayer. And maybe uh, write some articles throughout the year from time to time, too, on prayer. and Come up with some other ideas on uh, prayer meetings and fire teams. I've been talking about this for the last three years and have not yet set it into action. I would love to see this happen. Ask me about it later. But in the meantime, I encourage you, instead of just trying to lose weight, 
or whatever it is that you have done. I, I interestingly had a, had a daughter tell me the other day that uh, her New Year's resolution this last year was to see if she could finish an entire stick of chapstick. <laughs> she accomplished it. So I challenged her to two sticks this year. <laughs> But, you know, all of us have something like that. You know, we're like, I want to do something different. But if there's one thing that we know that has value, not just for this life, but for the life to come as well, maybe, maybe consider something spiritual in addition to chapstick and those other things that we are trying to work on. I honestly have never tried to finish it. I don't think I've ever used a chapstick more than twice in a year. So I'm apparently a pretty moist kind of a guy. But in this particular case, I'd say it was Daniel's consistency in prayer that prepared him for this particular day. He didn't wait for this day to happen and then pray. Rather, he was always praying. And so when the day came, he knew what to do. It wasn't any different than what he had always done. Something that Daniel had understood well, that if you're praying regularly, you're ready for the trials that you're about to face. There's just something about faithfulness in prayer that lends itself to courage, especially in the face of persecution. Those who rarely turn to God in prayer when actually something bad happens and they go to Him, they think they're going to be able to trust Him with their lives, but they haven't been trusting Him for the easy times. Do you really think it's going to be all that easy to trust a stranger that you don't even know? No, it, it builds. The more you trust Him on a daily basis, the more you'll trust Him when those bad things happen as well. Amen. Daniel was calm and collective that day in prayer because he had been praying that way every day, different hours throughout the day. In fact, when we get to next week, we'll find how, how anxious the king is. And like, he spends a lot of time talking about how anxious he is. And like, Daniel doesn't mention anything about his anxiety. He's just praying. But Daniel didn't pray merely at that time because it was his habit. He also prayed out of love for God, love for his people. Daniel didn't stop talking to God merely because some stupid edict was passed that said you can't talk to God anymore. Uh, this is a matter of first importance for him, certainly in his love for the Lord, but also in terms of the law of God. If you think about the very first commandment that's given in the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. There wasn't even a thought in his head in which Daniel would say, well, I guess I'll just I'll pray to the king or I'll pray through the king or I'll just stop praying altogether. Really? Uh, we, we've explained it many times to you before. Um, I love the Westminster Confession. It does a really good job of explaining the law of God. And, uh, one of the sections in the larger catechism particularly where it's explaining every single law that has a negative aspect, thou shalt not. There's a corresponding positive aspect, thou shalt. Right? So if the scripture says, thou shalt not have any of the gods before me, what does that imply? Well, the God, the Lord, should always be before me. Always. In fact, it would be a sin for him not to be before me. How can we not pray? The scripture says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind. How are we going to do that? How would we keep God before our eyes continually if we're not praying continually? You see, uh, R.C. Sproul said it really well numerous times throughout his ministry, but basically many of us act like practical atheists. Because we simply don't pray. Daniel, this is the farthest thing from his mind. 
Uh, not only that, but I mean, in the sense that if, if for some reason Daniel and his fear were to choose his own safety and security over prayer, in effect, he would be replacing God with an idol. What's before his eyes then at that point? Not God, but perhaps the king, perhaps his own destruction, perhaps many other things. All these other things are the things he's afraid of. He's not afraid of God anymore. He's afraid of these other things, you see. He's not fearing the Lord. You see, there's not, he could not do that. He was going to pray either way. So we, we, at times we need to ask ourselves, well, what is it that we really worship? In other words, if I don't pray very often, what is it that I do? What is it that I'm putting before me on a regular basis that becomes my effect of God? What am I looking to? That's what I really fear. That's what I really love more than I love God with all my heart and all my mind. I, I know nowadays as Protestants particularly, we're much more casual than we used to be, say, 100 years ago, certainly more casual than the Catholics would be. Um, you know, it used to be that believers, Protestants as well as Catholics, would have particular times of day set aside to pray. They, they would do this on schedule, on their calendar, if you will. They knew, I'm going to pray at this time of day. But I think we've just sort of, we've casualized everything in our culture, as you know. I mean, nowadays teenagers are wearing pajamas to school. What, what's up with that? I mean, I, I, I'm not wearing a tie. I know that. I hear it from at least 10 people every given Sunday. But there should be a seriousness, a reverence in our relationship with the Lord, as well as a deep and abiding joy and love. It's not, there's no dichotomy between these two things. But I do think sometimes I'll hear people say, and there are many books that promote this, well, just pr pray as you drive, which, which isn't a bad thing. It's, it's good. Just keep your eyes open. Some people say, well, I'm going to pray as I'm on the treadmill. Again, fine. Keep your eyes open. That can cause problems too. But if that's the only time you're praying as you're doing something else, does that really say that God is the first and foremost in my life? Or does it say, well, I'm going to try to fit him in when I'm doing something else that I really, really have to do? I think there's a difference. I do. Now, if you disagree with me, that's okay. I'm, I'm giving you, I hope, wise counsel. But in, in the same way, I, I think we've lost a, a sense of reverence even in the terms of posture. Again, you know, it used to be when Christians prayed, they, they often were on their knees when they were praying. Or maybe they're standing sometimes in, in, in deep contrition, flat on their face, prostrate on the ground. Uh, nowadays, we often, you know, just don't give any thought to that whatsoever. Why is he getting on his knees three times a day? Do you ever give any thought to that? Somehow, it was helping him to remember who his God is. He's the king. He's the Lord. And yes, there, there are times in which we ought to be able to pray to God, standing, sitting, running, whatever it is that we're doing, and we ought to be able to do that at all times throughout the day. But should there not also be times where there's something scheduled, if you will, something a little bit more formal, if you will, to help us to remember, this is my God and King. Now, again, I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not recommending merely formalizing or ritualizing our faith and 
as long as you pray, you know, three times a day, mark it off on your calendar, you're a good Christian. I'm not saying that. Not at all. Nor am I saying if you get on your knees, that definitely is better than not in that sense, that you have to be on your knees at all times. I, I, all I'm saying is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right? We have learned to reject ritualism. We've learned to reject formalism. But let's not throw out the, the core of what was actually there in that tradition. There's a reason why that tradition has been a tradition for so long. I think we're, we're losing that as we wear our pajamas to school and everything else. I hate to see what the next generation's wearing to school. I mean, come on. But literally, the psalmist says in Psalm 95, verse 6, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Daniel's doing that three times a day. So when the earthly king challenges him, who do you think he's looking to? He's looking to his heavenly, eternal king, and he doesn't give a flip what the king says. Again, we're not told exactly how his antagonist found Daniel in prayer. Likely, they simply just waited for the hour of prayer. I think they probably knew when most of the Jews would gather for prayer and when they would spend time in their own uh, closet for prayer, if you will. Uh, so all they had to do was wait. They knew he would be doing it. So it wouldn't have taken much effort or skill on their part. Which again begs the question, if our enemies wanted to catch us in the act of prayer, would they be able to do so? Would your enemies be able to find a time in which they actually saw you praying or heard you praying or even maybe suspected that you were praying? That's a great question to ask, I think. Have I gotten legalistic enough for you yet? <laughs> Of course, if you think about it, even if they couldn't catch him in the act, all they really had to do was to accuse him of praying. And do you think Daniel's going to say, no, I wasn't praying? <laughs> I mean, literally, uh, you might think that this whole scenario is absolutely ridiculous. And it is, but it's actually very similar to a scenario that's happened just in the last two years in England. There's a woman by the name of Isabel von Spruce who has been treated as a criminal in the eyes of the British government, not because she committed some heinous crime, but because she was suspected of praying in a safe zone around an abortion clinic in the large city of Birmingham. But keep in mind, she wasn't yelling at the women who were coming into the clinic, nor was she holding up any offensive signs that seemed to disturb any of the women coming by, nor was she reading the Bible out loud or saying anything verbally at all she was just standing there praying silently someone accused her of praying and six police officers came and took her away for praying in her head baffling how much of the freedoms that we've lost as you know, we already have gun-free zones. What would happen if we had prayer-free zones? I know some of you are thinking we already have that in schools, but technically you're still allowed to pray. Just can't bother the school, can't bother the people. No state-sponsored prayers, but I was uh, thinking about this the other day. When I was on the treadmill, not praying, by the way. Planet Fitness, in addition to a sign when you walk out that says gun-free zone, I said, okay, make sure there's no guns on me, which would be kind of weird to have a gun on the treadmill. Um, but it also says judgment-free zone. What does that mean? 
Well, today it means I'm not supposed to judge anybody who can't lift more weights than me, I guess, which I really don't have that much problem with. It's not my issue. But what if, it ha- what if it means in the future, if I close my eyes while I'm on the treadmill, am I praying for the sinner next to me? Is that, is that allowed? Is that offensive? Is, do I think I'm so good and righteous that they hate me for it and they have to stop me from doing it? Uh, you know, the, I, I don't mean to get all George Orwellian on you here, but really this isn't that much science fiction anymore. In this day and age of technology and AI and everything else we have under the sun, Big Brother really is watching us just about every place we go. What happens if all of a sudden prayer becomes illegal? Are we in trouble? I can tell you for sure that our Korean brothers and sisters who live here in America, they're going to be in jail the first day. And I know that I spent a couple weeks with them in a seminary class, and they don't stop praying. They just don't stop. And they gather for prayer together, even in the morning. All of them come together, and they're doing it all at the same time. I don't make any sense of it whatsoever, but they do it to hold each other accountable to pray. They would be in jail the very first day. What about the rest of us? Could they catch us? Would it be hard for them to find us in prayer? Just a minute, we're going to sing a song by William Walford, who was a blind preacher in England back in the 19th century. He's well known for having memorized most of the Bible, which makes it a whole lot easier to pray, by the way, because if you're praying Scripture, if you know Scripture, it's, it's, it's a lot easier. But he also was well known for his prayers. And in 1845, one of the hymns that he had concocted in his head was later penned by someone else, and it was entitled The Sweet Hour of Prayer, which signified for him a time and a place that he really, really looked forward to. He was waiting for this glorious hour when God would reveal his face to him and he would receive the grace of heaven as he lifted up his petitions and his desires unto God. He said, I hasten to the place where God my Savior shows his face and I gladly take my station there and wait for the sweet hour of prayer. Psalm 109 verse 4 in the ESV, David is being harassed by his enemies And in response to this, rather than just giving a complaint unto the Lord, his response to this persecution, he says, I give myself to prayer. But I like the way in the Hebrew, it literally says, I myself am prayer. What? I myself am prayer. He's he's distinguishing himself between his persecutors. His persecutors are doing this. They're known for this. But I myself am prayer. He's so known by his prayers that, that he doesn't, David doesn't even know, he doesn't say, I myself am king, I myself am strong. He says, I myself am a man of prayer, therefore I'm not afraid. And then he enters into praise unto God because he's not afraid, because he's a man of prayer. And he knows whom he trusts. New Testament believers, we understand that very clearly. It's only through the mediation of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. If Daniel is a great and godly example for us, which he is, he doesn't even compare to Jesus, right? Perfect in every way. You couldn't even find a secret sin of his that wasn't mentioned in the dark. There's nothing. He is the high priest through which we pray. He is the one that we look to. We are accepted by God, not because we're good enough, 
In fact, God doesn't even listen to the prayers of the wicked. Scripture says that a few times in Scripture. The only reason why he listens to us is because Christ has already paid the full penalty for all of our sins and given us his full righteousness so that God would look at us when we're praying and say, I love you, my son. I hear you, my son. I will answer. My daughter, I love you. I will answer, not because you're good, but because my son Jesus is good. You have him as your great high priest who's praying for you regularly. He gives you access to pray. And then you also have the Holy Spirit who's been given to you as another comforter, a helper to come help you to learn how to pray, who makes up for all of our bad prayers. We've said this many times before. Everyone said, well, I don't pray well. Who cares? The Spirit does. He will make up for your badness. He makes up for my badness. But the Spirit, in addition to working as a a seal of the assurance of our salvation, He also is the one who continues to reiterate to us this one cry, Abba, Father. He moves in us to cry out unto God. We have everything that we need to pray. You don't need to take a big long class on this. You don't have to learn all the secret lingo You just start. The more you do it, the better you get. And the better you get, the realize how awful you think you are. And the greater Christ seems to you, and the more you trust the Father, and the more you appreciate what the Spirit's doing in you. So I highly encourage you, as we go again to the Lord and the Lord's Supper, to remember you have this access unto God. Don't take it lightly. God loves you. He wants you to talk to him. He wants to hear from you. And actually misses it when you're not there. Find an hour of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you in our weak and foolish lisping prayers. We know that We don't have enough of the Word of God that's hidden in our hearts to be able to give you exactly what is worthy of your name. We know that we don't fully understand your Word well enough to to pray in the way that we ought. We know that our desires are mixed with sin left and right. There's not a single desire that we have that is worthy of your name. But yet we come to you because you've commanded us to. We come to you because you graciously offer us to come to you. We come to you because we have nowhere else to go. You are our Lord. You are our Savior. There's no one else. Lord, we pray that we would not be strangers to you this year. Help us to know you, to know that you're our friend. And that you listen to the prayers of your friends. We pray in Jesus.